Hello, everyone, and welcome to another American Scouser podcast. We are back with our Monday edition. I am your host, as always, Timuchin in Chicago in a different chair. But I'll tell you what, this chair is a lot more comfortable. So with Uh us is our usual Monday crew. We have Bickler with us, as always. Back to the non-business look, I see. The hoodie is back. What's going on, Bickler? Uh, makeup and wardrobe wasn't available today, so I just scooted in last minute. Um, figured you know, I just Bill Murray it today. Actually, we talk about this all the time with Gally. Uh, we set up this podcast ready to go. Uh, usually, like we chat with Gally a little bit and stuff before, and then usually Victor is running in the last second, throwing his you know, like briefcase on the corner, coming from work or something like that. But today he was early, we call it sort of eight minutes early for him, don't we, Gally? Yeah, he was definitely early for him today. And the only thing that's more consistent than Bickler showing up is Alan getting into this podcast before I even get to say hello. And Alan, we thank you and hello in Texas. Like Alan, he's fashionably on time, like myself. Yeah, yeah, he is. He is prompt. I'll tell you that right now. If we are ever given out an award for best attendance on the podcast, it would probably go to Alan rather than any of the three of us, because I think he has made more consi- <laughs> he's made more consecutive Mondays than all three of us combined. Well, let's get going. Alan actually was sending me a trivia earlier, which is very similar to the trivia that BJ has set up for this week. It's more like an interesting fact slash trivia. So FA Cup, we're going to talk about the game against City. And both City and Liverpool had only one player start every single FA Cup game for them. Who was this player? What, by the way, Alan Mola says, my pleasure, been sitting here for 30 minutes. That's like, I don't know, probably at least like 15 podcasts combined for Bickler if he's like 30 minutes before. So, Bickler, we will start with you for your guesses. Who do you have for Liverpool? Who do you have for City? The player that I just, started I just want to highlight the fact that if I was 30 minutes early, you guys would hate me. So, like, I'm really just doing it for the pod. That's But fair. anyway. <laughs> um, so, one player for – for Liverpool has played every single yeah, you got to repeat the question. It was too long ago now. Oh uh, yeah, I was sorry, short term memory. But if you're in the pre-production meeting, we can maybe cover these. Okay, so <laughs> it's the one player has started every FA Cup game for City, and one player has started every FA Cup game for Liverpool. Who are these two players? Mm, so two. All right. Um Look at Gally. He's going to, like, do notes and stuff. Gally um, <laughs> pulled out a sheet of paper like he's going to calculate it somehow. <laughs> I was going to write it down so I couldn't be stupid enough to put a name out and then not have it in God, a second no. after Paul takes 25 minutes. Well, let's go down the list here. I don't – I feel like Trent's been in and out of the lineup. Robbo's been in and out of the lineup early on. Uh, okay, so I'm gonna go for Liverpool. I'm gonna go, oh, fuck, dude, I don't, I'm gonna go Van Dyke for Liverpool. Um, I feel like Mo maybe missed a game or two early on. It would be between Mo and Van Dyke for me. I'll go Van Dyke, uh, for City. I mean, uh, City, I'll go Sterling. 
Okay, Gally, why don't we go with you? And these are, I'm making sure I got this right. These are started, right? I'm making sure started, it wasn't a yes. beard. They started well, Alan's first, every game. Alan's answer, was, Alan's answer was Henderson, and he didn't start yesterday on Saturday. So I got confused, and he's actually more prepared for this Don't podcast. Don't be blaming Alan for not answering I wanted to make sure I understood. That's why I'm going to blame sure Alan because dogging me for picking Burge, and then he picks Henderson, who didn't start last week. So at least yeah. my memory is better than that. Yeah, I'm going to uh, – I'm, I'm actually going to say it is Kanate. And – for City, I'm going to go with Zinchenko. Hmm. You are 50% correct. Um, for Liverpool, it is Kanade. He played uh, basically 450 minutes and has that goal that he just scored. And then for City, it's Cancelo. It's- who has oh, played yeah, minutes out of his possible 450. Um, but, so, 50% correct is not too shabby, Galley. Let's face it, Bickler was not even close. So, let's <laughs> let's go to the lineup. Bickler, you can we None of us, uh, I, th- I think most of us kind of got close with this lineup. But For what the Champions you- League? For the Champions League, I got real close. Oh, no, that's lineup. the wrong one. Yeah, so let's go. Let me put, While I get the right graphic over here, let's talk about the lineup. I figure we'll address the City game. There are a couple of things. I don't know. Let's ch- talk about this first. Before we even get to the game, let's talk about the pregame moment of silence and how the City fans acted on that. Because there was a lot of chatter online. Where do you kind of like, how do you look at that, Bickler, and where do you stand on that? I mean, where I stand on it is it's disgusting, and it's good for City to distance themselves publicly from that. But, I mean, let's face it. Like, this is a club that's had a huge, serious cash injection in the last 15 years. They're a nothing club. They have no history. Like, this is – like, this brief period of success is their history. The only way they can get under our skin is to do shit like that. So, for me, it's like as much as I hate it, I almost hate even talking about it because it's giving them the attention they don't deserve. Like they don't fucking deserve for us to even talk about them period. Um, but yeah, it's disgusting and they're a nothing club. How about you, Gally? I, you know, this is one thing that I found very odd because this is something that I kind of like always point out, especially like throughout the league. I feel like those, you know, the moment of silence, the clapping and stuff like that is done so civilized compared to all the other leagues. God knows compared to the Turkish league. Uh, so I've always said, you know, like how well it's done and everything. So I was actually kind of taken back and shocked by how that fo- unfolded, especially at Wembley in such a big game. I mean, it's obviously very classless, but I think it made me even more shocked that it was happening in an FA Cup game in Wembley. Like I say, I mean, I've seen some brutal stuff in across the Europe and other stuff. I know, like Turkey, you know, like they're booing the opposing team's national anthem, all kinds of crap. You know, like it it happens. Uh, so I never set it as an example, but I always set like the Premier League and how the British fans usually react to this stuff as an example. So I was kind of like shocked that it happened, to be honest. Yeah, I'm with Paul. First off, it's a classless maneuver. We really shouldn't give it too much time. If we want to talk about it, we should talk about more of um, 
their response to it because to, to their credit, they had a statement out within half an hour after the match. Two players talked about it as being in their post-match uh, remarks on the pitch, saying that they were embarrassed for their supporters. And Pep talked about it as well in his comments after the match. So, you know, City's trying their best to separate. The one thing I'll say is I always say is like, this wasn't all City fans. This was a pocket of fans. And I think one of the problems with social media and even kind of the moment that we live in is that it's so easy to get caught up in something quickly when you're in a crowd of 20,000, 30,000 people. I'd like to believe there are people that were embarrassed in the sections looking around at other people making these boos and these noises. The fact that it was being done during a moment for the Hillsborough victims makes it even worse. I mean, it's just a, it, it obviously is what the 33 year anniversary two days ago. It's a massive moment. It was during a semifinal of an FA Cup tie. So the idea that at that moment they would do it is even a little bit more classless. That being said, um, Liverpool put out comments today condemning fans on Twitter that are taking runs at Cristiano Ronaldo and his partner for the tragic events that they're going through. So let's not act for a second like we're completely infallible to this. You know, our own players racially abuse some of our own players for mistakes they made in Europe last year. I know it's social media and it's not fans booing in a stadium, but I do think, and we had this conversation today in the Discord channel a little bit about, you know, the rose-colored glasses you look through. So I always find, like, I don't want to compare anything we've ever done to that because it's not on that level. But I do think sometimes as supporters we get so caught up to condemn and bash on, you know, the dirty Leeds fans or, you know, the terrible supporters at Chelsea for still supporting Abramovich. We have to realize, like, you, you know, they will, uh, you know, people that live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And I think sometimes we do stand on a pulpit and scream, no one respects us as Liverpool fans. But then we also stand on a pulpit and tell everyone that we're the greatest supporters in the entire world. And, and you know, and I think people get sick of hearing that. And unfortunately for us, we're at, we are back at the top of the podium right now. And I think for a long time, people stopped worrying about us because we weren't number one anymore. And they focused on bashing City and bashing United and bashing Chelsea. And they had plenty of reason and we should still do that. I just think that sometimes we have to be careful uh, when we look at these instances. What they did on Saturday was disgusting. I just think sometimes as supporters, we should just take kind of a look back in, at everything and and realize like there's a civil way to do this. And 99% of the time we're on the right of it. City was way on the wrong, but the club came out and, you know, denounced their supporters. So I think that's all you can really ask when something, when a wrong like this has happened, that the club comes out and tries to make right. And I think that's what they tried to do as quickly. And I think that's the thing. I mean, I don't think you can ever say, oh, no Liverpool fan would ever do something like that or whatever, because when you have a large group of people, it's impossible to come for everybody and there's going to be some assholes. I always find it amazing that, and this happens in a lot of soccer games, and not only in soccer games, it happens in like other crowds, how you can get, like, do something so obnoxious and classless and somehow, like, that whole crowd mentality comes in Bickler where, like you somehow are able to get like, I mean, I know you're saying like a pocket, but to be able to make that, I, despite it was being a moment of silence, you still need a mini crowd to be able to get going. So there were people like chiming into it. I always find it shocking how you can get other people around 
to kind of chime in while you would think still the majority is kind of like disgusted by the whole thing and be like, like, dude, shut up. Like, you're just being an asshole. I just don't understand how that crowd thing sometimes happens. And it happens all the time. It's not like just this incident. Like, we've seen it before. Are you Explain asking me? I'm asking you. I feel like you're baiting me into a conversation that involves copious amounts of alcohol at games. Like, I mean, I think it's just you get a lot of people together, they're drinking before the match, and they turn to idiots. And, like, I think a lot of people, like I said, I just think it, I, I think it derives from a, a need to get under people's skin at some sort of baseline level. And that's how they think they can do it. And, I mean, because let's face it, anything – involving Hillsborough gets a massive reaction from our fan base regardless as well. It should. Right. But I mean, I think that's what it boils down to is that's where they get the reaction because they're not getting it on the pitch. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Actually, the fact that when you can get it on the pitch, you got to find something. And that is kind of, I mean, for rightly, like you said, it's kind of like a sore spot that it's like kind of like easy to pick if you will. Uh, and they kind of like go at it. like, I guess like where it hurts, but um, so let's talk about the lineup then. Let's go back to the pitch. Um, more than the lineup, I think like for the most part it was expected. I know like for the front three, we had, like we debated about this a little bit. But in terms of the gameplay, Galley, uh, what do you think was the biggest difference between the Premier League game and the Cup game? I mean, is it something that we did? Is it just the differences of lineups or where do you put that? Well, I think to be fair, I think there's, you know, I think you have to start with the fact City made seven changes. And we talk all the time when you make that many changes to a team that works on a system and, and, and is, and, you know, works as a collective unit, you are going to have some drop. So I think in City's case, their, their changes is where it starts. I don't think that's the reason for the uh, difference from a 2-2 draw to a 3-2 victory. I do believe that the rotation is obviously clear, and KDB is a huge, huge piece. Um, but I think they might have been missing Rodri in that midfield as much as they – maybe even more than they were missing KDB. And I think the main difference with us is, is we had our A game in Fabinho playing like Fabinho. And last weekend he kind of played like an old man Fernandinho. And, and we needed Fabinho on the pitch. And yesterday they got an old man Fernandinho performance. And I think Rodri could have made a massive difference, especially for Stones and Ake having to play as a partnership. For us, I would say that it was um, the mixture of Mane through the middle, Diaz on the wing, and primarily um, Thiago just running the entire pitch. And if anyone doesn't believe that uh, – playing on an extra large Wembley pitch doesn't help a player and a tactician like Thiago have more space. And, you know, they were talking about how it's the slowest of any pitches ever played at Wembley stadium because of the new grass and the way they're watering and all this. And you could almost see it. The game looked like it slowed down for Thiago to the point where he was literally pulling strings. So for me, it's the combination of the improvement of our midfield and the weakened midfield that they put out there. And I think that's where that match was, where we overran them in the first half. And I think, I mean, Victor, like looking at the game and like watching some of the highlights and our press and stuff, it almost felt like 
we played i mean i hate that saying where like you play more hungry i mean obviously every time we go out there we go to win but maybe we played braver like we were pressing more whereas it felt like in the premier league game we were kind of worried about perhaps because if we lost that game the title race would be not over but a lot closer to being over uh whereas i mean this game it's a cup game you win or lose either way uh, do you think that has anything to do with it, or it's just like an attitude change? I mean, the way we pressed, uh, like the way like Keita and the top three were pressing all the way into their box. I mean, Mane's goal by itself. I felt like we were a lot more aggressive, and we did not let them sit on the ball as comfortable as the first game. I don't know if I agree with that entirely because if you looked at the f- match like a week ago, the the league match, like. I don't know if we press the team harder and with more intensity in the first 10 minutes of match than we did in that match. I mean, the, the league match, we were, we, we pressed the shit out of them the first 10 minutes, but like, I think it really comes down to the fact that whoever wins the midfield traditionally wins this matchup and them not having KDB and, and, and Rodri definitely helped us. We, we won the midfield. And I think it's not only the press, which was good, but it was how we pressed in the midfield. Um, we talked a little bit about this in ratings, but I think that first half was like a tactical masterpiece and a blueprint in how you beat City. And I think that even with the Bruyne and Rodri in that lineup, that first half, the system would have caused City problems because what happened is, is when they were able to get the ball into the mids, both sides of the pitch squeezed in and made it very, very narrow. So they were forced to play long diagonals out wide and beat us from the flanks, which means you either got to beat the high line diagonally or you got to beat us with Kanate and Verge back there on height. And that's very, very difficult to do. Um, now, that certainly helped when you don't have De Bruyne in there because De Bruyne is the one that can bang a diagonal with enough pace and velocity and accuracy to really cause you problems but we weren't going to get that with that city midfield. And so I think it was a tactical masterpiece, just a general in how we played the mids and the fact that we were able to flip possession. What do you think, Galleon? Obviously they did not have the players to be able to perhaps cope with that press as easily. Like when you have like stones and Ake and, you know, your American keeper, which Sparky Parker says, love the American keeper. And you're the first person I thought of Galley when that happened. I'm like, I'm sure he's kind of loving this and ranting inside about the national team at the same time. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, first and foremost, I think I one of my big rants over the summer was when will Greg Berhalter realize his number one keeper is probably his third best keeper? Because I don't rate Stefan. I don't believe Stefan should be the backup at Manchester City. I don't believe Stefan did well during his loan spell at Dusseldorf, which would have actually brought him back. His only time of ever getting top flight football, he couldn't, he didn't start every match. And as a keeper, if you go out on loan from a club like city, you expect to play. Right. So the only problem is, is the best U S keeper is probably about to go sit at Arsenal. So neither of them will play leading into the world cup. So we'll be just as terrible as we saw on Saturday, which we can save that rant for. Well, hopefully never. Um, but where I have the issue a little bit here is, is that, you know, the Stones thing, Stones was first choice all last year. He was Diaz's first choice partner for most of last year. He had usurped Laporte for a portion of this year. So, you know, were they weakened at center back? I do believe they were. 
I think the real issue with them comes down to is, is they kind of have this wonderful deep squad, but really they're where we were a year ago. They really have like 14 players that really do a job because Pep doesn't really rotate his fullbacks. He very rarely rotates his defenders. It's really two, three attackers. And whether it's Grealish, Mares, Silver, Gundogan, right? It's really like that four to five person swing. And I know I got killed earlier in the year when I was saying that I thought that we were actually a deeper squad. Like we had more answers when we needed to replace a player. And I thought that was what was evident. We made a major switch to Kanate at the back, Keita for the captain in midfield, and Diaz up front. And I would say all three of them outplayed their counterpart that started last weekend against Manchester City in Henderson, Matip, and uh, what was it? Was it Jota that started the, the match against City? Um, and I just, I, I genuinely think that's really where this match was won. It was won because the drop-off now for our club, when we substitute some of our strong key first 11, is not as big of a drop-off as it was a year or two ago. And I, I really believe that was the difference in this match, was that we still had game-changers on the bench, and City actually didn't. They really didn't have much that they could go to to come off the bench. Um, and I, I will agree there with Megan's point that Walker was a huge miss. Uh, his pace alone was huge for them to be missing. And I, and I think we saw it because our, our fullbacks didn't have to press on as high as they usually do. And I think that had a lot to do with the fact that Cato was really bossing the midfield. And I think that his press was as good as I've seen it. I think you guys mentioned it in the ratings. You know, this to me is the best run we've seen of Nabi Cato. And if we're finally getting to see the Nabi Keita that we thought we were buying two, three years in, you know, it could be even scarier because it took Tiago 18 months really for us to get a masterclass performance. And I think if we could figure out a way to play the two of them, Hendo and Fab, you know, on a rotating basis between the four of them um, in the three positions, I think it's very similar to what we have now with five to fill three up front. And we're starting to really build the type of depth that can make a quadruple be something not only that we dream about, but that we believe can be real and something that we might be able to sustain. So that adds another question. I was going to pass over to you now, Bickler, because we were, I was going to ask you about depth and I was going to, I, now I want to ask you about Keita as well. So let's start with the depth first, and then we'll kind of go back to Keita when we're talking about some of the performances, but do you feel like the tables have turned where, you know, we were talking what, maybe like two years ago, how kind of like what Galley's saying, like we had, you know, players, I mean, you always have players on the bench, but not people we could rely on to be able to fill the role just like the starter or without a huge drop off. I mean, obviously, you know, they're not going to be exact, otherwise they'd be starting. But um, do you feel like the tables have turned where we have that depth now on our bench where we can bring the players and City really doesn't? Yeah, and I definitely think it has to do with, like, I mean, I think it has to do with how they've acquired talent. I mean, they've gone out and got heavy hitters, but I don't think they've necessarily been that intelligent about it. If you look at what they did, they started a starting 11 with three left wingers. Like, and they don't have an identifiable striker. And so they kept moving people over on the left wing to try to find an answer 
and Trent one by one, starting with Foden, shut him down. And then they moved Sterling over, shut him down, moved Graylish over, and they couldn't they couldn't figure it out. And I think it has a lot to do with like you can't just go into the market and buy best available. Like no matter what the money is, you have to have a tactical plan for how you want to set up. And uh, we're mm-hmm. looking at a Liverpool squad that has an answer for almost everything except for backup right back right now, in my opinion. Um, and and that's a, I think that's a testament to not only the system we play, but how we've acquired talent throughout. So let's go back to the game. And I want to still come back to Kata and get your guys' take on that. But let's go back to the game. First half versus the second half. And I know their goal came in in the worst spot possible because uh, that was kind of like my thing. If they're going to make a run for it, I just wanted like the first control the game in the first five, ten minutes in the second half. And I feel like we would have just put them away. It would probably been like an extremely boring second half to watch. And it would have probably ended like 3-0 or like 3-1 in the last second or something. But what do you make of that difference, Gally? Is it just a matter of City being a bit more aggressive or us taking a kind of like taking a slower, almost like more comfortable and not as aggressive. Well, I felt like we came out of the half making with the mindset of don't give up an early goal. Right. And you could almost see it. They looked like they were just trying to like feed the feel themselves into the second half. They knew they had a three goal lead, which means our tactics are going to change. If anyone thinks they didn't somewhat take the foot off the gas a little, they knew what they were going to protect. Um, and I think they looked at it that way. It was, you know, a mistake. Grealish gets the ball, scores the goal, right? And now it's 3-1. For me, the biggest spot of the second half is probably Allison's save on Jesus, not allowing it to be 3-2 just, what, four or five minutes later? Because let's be honest, that, that needs to be a goal. That should be a goal. He's wide open in the middle of the box, and he smashes the ball at Allison. It's uh, that to me was maybe one of the more like not talked about moments uh, because at three two, I do think it becomes squeaky bum time, um, and I do think that is the nerve wracking part. You know, the fact they get the goal as late as they do, you know, I I didn't think we were going to concede again. Don't get me wrong, I didn't want to see you know Bernardo Silva get on the end of that ball at three two. But at the same time, I feel like how well we played in that first 45 minutes dictated the temperament and tempo that we played the second half. at. And I think when we did give up the early goal, we got reorganized, we got ourselves back in line. And then we just decided, you know, if we can hit them on the counter, we will. But we're going to sit back and, and, you know, we're going to kind of take on some of this pressure a little bit. We're going to make it hard to beat us and break us down because ultimately they knew that city wasn't up for it and that city wasn't on their best day. And it was going to take Liverpool mistakes for city to get back into that game. And I just don't think we were ever going to give them three of them is what it came down to. You sure got mighty close though. At least I thought I was pretty comfortable when like Jones was coming out there. I'm like, okay, we're just like putting the icing, you know, just putting the candle, lighting it up kind of deal. And then that goal comes in and yeah, talking about squeaky bump time the last three minutes there, but Bickler, what do you allude that to? I mean, do you think – I mean, do you agree with Galley? Do you see another reason behind the change between yeah, I mean, side I think A and side kind of B? I think, I think Galley kind of nailed it at the beginning of the half because, I mean, we always talk about from the time we come up as school kids, the most important are the first 10 minutes and the last 10 minutes of every half, right? Uh, especially when you're up 
when you're up three goals, if you if you can get into like 60 minutes, you know, you're looking at you can bleed this thing out. So I think, yeah, I think it sounds really silly, but if you're not on the offensive, you're on the defensive. And if you're on the defensive versus city, you're playing with fire. So I think uh I think the fact that, that we didn't go out necessarily and try to uh hold possession in a way that was threatening definitely hurt us. I honestly never felt I never felt threatened in that match. Even even after that early goal, I felt like we dominated play for the most part. I felt like their chances were limited to areas where they're very low percentage, like danger areas in general. Like even that last minute goal, like I think is like we pushed them to the byline. Allie gets five hold on the like on the near post. I mean, that's a like one in ten shot that goes in. Most of the time, Allie's gonna have that covered. I just never felt that nervous about that throughout that entire match. Um, and maybe that was me being overconfident, but I just felt like we held possession. We limited them to very few chances and we were, we kept them in low percentage areas on the pitch. So let me ask you guys this then. I mean, we're watching this and obviously like we look at the first half, that's probably like how you would expect us to continue playing if the score is close and everything like that. Uh, so, Gally, in terms of that midfield, I know when we talked about it on Thursday, I was kind of afraid to have Keita and uh, Thiago at the same time there. But has this now become, partially due to Hando's form, maybe partially due to Keita's form, has this become the ideal like starting 11 for us? I would say that this is probably, I don't know where I lost both of my other two colleagues, but uh, I'll talk to each of you for a bit. Um, I'm still here. I can I, hear you. Oh, all right. Paul's here. Yeah. He's just not on the screen. So I would, I would probably say that it is not the automatic starting uh, midfield. I do believe on current form, it is probably the most informed midfield. And I think what Nabby is starting to show you is that he's getting more and more comfortable playing in the small triangles on the pitch with more players. And I know it sounds crazy, right? But for a period, it really looked like he was comfortable playing with, you know, with Bravo and playing with Mane out on the left. And then at times it looked like he had that same form of uh, interaction and play when he was playing with Diaz. I'm starting to see that with Trent as well as with Mo. And I think that he's understanding his positional awareness and the difference of the role, whether he's playing on the left or he's playing on the right. And I think he's kind of understanding his role in the team. And I think he's also feeling better with the physicality um, that I, I see him making more challenges. I think he's getting stuck in a little bit more on tackles. You know, earlier in the year, Tamuchin, you were you love to coin the phrase, we'll never see him do another 50-50 again. And now I feel like he's watched like one too many episodes of Cobra Kai, and every time he goes in for a tackle, he decides to sweep the leg. Because, you know, Nabi Kate is getting yellow cards that are really, really deserved. Because um, he's clearing people out. And I think that kind of comes with the confidence of, I'm going to get in there, I'm going to time this right, I mean, he's not going in with Tiago-like timing where he comes up with either like a look of disdain, despair, or, you know, disgust. But I do believe that what Keita is doing is everything Jurgen Klopp wanted him to do two and a half seasons ago when he arrived, which was fit in, find a role, 
and understand how to play within the system using his skills. And I don't think we'd ever seen that from him until, you know, really the last month on a consistent basis, we'd have flashes, but I feel like now we're seeing the pressing, we're seeing the dribbling, we're seeing him actually pop up in the box in, you know, in that genie role every once in a while, you look up and you're like, is that Mane? And then you realize, no, that's Nabi Keita on the six yard box, making a, you know, the last midfield run into the box. And I, I really think that's a big, that's a big key here to where we're going. I'm not ready to say he's locked in one of the first 11, first three in the midfield, but I do believe he's putting an awful lot of pressure on the captain to be one of the first names penciled in on the team sheet any longer. I mean, nobody has a more critical of this guy than me, probably. I'll take the credit for that one. But, and I still, I do not fully agree to that. I think ever since the Pogba challenge, he is a bit more timid than normal. But I think the thing that suits this guy is this ridiculous pressing. And when we're aggressive pressing, because that's really his strength, that counter press. And when he's just focusing on that, trying to win the ball, I feel like he's a lot better player than when he feels like we're playing against this team that's kind of sitting back, not even like keeping the ball, kind of giving it to us and sitting back. That's when he struggles more when he's trying to like threaten these passes and trying to like feels like he has to create something. And that's kind of like usually my criticism of him comes then because usually he's turning those balls over or like picking the wrong pass. But is this the best Keita we have seen so far, as one of the comment- commenters were saying earlier, Bickler? Or no, it is. It's it is, and it's been the longest run of form where he's been good. You know, Galli brings up Cobra Kai, and I'd like to think somewhere on the training facility, there's like Diago, like motioning for Nabby to come over, and then he slides this door open, and in they walk, and there's Milner in like a sensei sensei jacket with like wood planks. Um, because I think he is he is definitely going in on, on challenges and he is holding his own. I think look, it's 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 interesting because we talked about he, there's a lot of heat on why was Nabby getting these starts? Why why is Jones not getting these starts midseason? Like beginning the midseason, there was a lot of like, why are we putting Nabby in these games? And we came, we you know, we kind of came to the conclusion through these matches that He's legitimately our fourth best midfielder, despite public, you know, the general consensus. He is genuinely our fourth best. I think the argument can be made right now that he's our third best. I don't know if I'm ready to start him ahead of Hendo right now because I think Henderson brings so much in terms of tempo and organization. I don't know if I'm there yet. He was on the right, and I hate him on the right uh, in this match. I think it worked because we had a tactical switch where Robbo pushed up further on the left and Trent stayed back on the right. If Trent continues that thing where he pushes further up and Robbo stays back, I don't know if I I don't know if Kata does the same job. I don't know if he's as effective or is is I, I feel like he's more of a liability in that situation. So I think there's this is a small, it's it's sort of a small um test. It's like it's we haven't seen enough of that situation to really know how that evolves. But yeah, I mean, great game from him. Long may continue. This is his best run of form for his longest period. Um, and it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out down the stretch and, and whether he can cement himself in as a regular starter or not. Yeah, and I think that slightly depends on Hando becoming the old Hando again. I just don't think it's just – I know I read a couple of times where it's like, oh, it's the age and stuff. I really don't think so. I think it's just a matter of 
him getting some like regular minutes and stuff like now as well. And that's a good point. We talked about this in the ratings video, how there was almost like a role reversal between like Robo and Trent, where we almost like saw Robo like going into the middle and stuff like that from like the left wing as opposed to Trent. And yeah, I don't know if he would do the same work defensively. If Thiago is really teaching all that good stuff, I hope he's teaching that crazy face. Uh, Megan says, I've also determined Thiago does the crazy face to distract the ref and slow down play so there can't be a quick free kick. Yeah, I think that's part of the... Has to be part of the training, the look afterwards of shock and disbelief. Yes, eyes wide open, <laughs> covering the entire face, if you will. But so I want to talk about, and Parto actually was asking earlier. So let's answer that question. I mean, I don't know if you guys, uh, I, sometimes I like go into a YouTube black hole where I watch video after video after video. And from actually this game, they had a manager cam. And they were showing basically how both managers were like manager on the sideline. And I feel like these two guys, and, you know, we have the stats of them and how much money they've spent, though, to get there. Uh, and But how many points? I mean, it's like ridiculous how close everything is in some ways. But I also feel like, Bickler, that out of like managers, especially for Klopp, he, Pep is the guy that he respects the most. Perhaps maybe he respects the way the city plays the most out of all the other teams in the league. Yeah, I get that feeling too. I mean, I think it's really easy to sit here and say Pep's a checkbook manager when you look at the fact that he's bounced from Bayern to Barcelona to City and basically had an open checkbook wherever he landed. Um, but I think that I think that Pep is legitimately. Uh, really good tactically. I think he does have a tendency to over tinker with lineups and overthink things in big situations. But I think that Klopp has a lot of respect for how he constructs and plays football through the midfield. Um, and I also think that Klopp has a lot of respect for Pep as a person, like in general, like, I think that I get the feeling that Pep is legitimately a good dude. And I think that that, I think that matters to Klopp just like it matters for Klopp in terms of acquiring talent we acquire good people. Like whenever we get a transfer in, our last two, Diaz, Kanate, they're genuinely good stories and they're genuinely good people with good personalities. And I think that that matters to him. So I think there is some of that, um, you know, aside from the success in, in the tactics involved, I, th I think there is a mutual uh, understanding between the two uh, about playing the game a certain way and how they do it. Yeah, because when you look at these numbers, I mean, the biggest thing is obviously the money spent. But, uh, like, you know, when you look at, uh, like, $1.8 million per point for Pep and 964000 for Klopp, uh, $93 million per trophy for Pep and the City, and $103.4 million for Liverpool. But obviously, with the trophies, some of those being, or a lot of those being, like the leak up and stuff, kind of like skews that argument. I just think, I know Pep has always had, you know, like a huge payroll to work with and stuff. But I think it's one of those things that I think Klopp appreciates the fact that that doesn't always do it by itself. And I think you know, Pep always gets, oh, he always goes to a stack team. A lot of managers were in those stack teams and they did not do half the success that this dude got. I think it's a different skill set to be able to manage 
those egos and those payrolls and, you know, be able to rotate it and everything like that. Because there are a lot of teams where a ton of money is spent, but they're not doing shit. What do you yeah, think? United has, United has spent more money than City has since Pep came in, and United has a bigger weekly wage bill than what Pep's wage bill is at City. And for all those out there, you know, up until last year, City had a smaller wage bill than us. I know it will shock you and make you angry, but it's the truth. So they spend a lot on transfers. They spend a lot on fees. But at times, their wages are actually just on par in their wage structure. What Pep does well is Pep gets the most out of his players. And I think that's why Klopp respects him and why Klopp really enjoys this rivalry is he knows that Pep has a principle about playing the game and actually doesn't compromise to win titles for his principles. And that has never been more evident than Pep's first year. Do you guys remember people calling Pep an absolute failure when City finished third or fourth his first year in the Premier League? They never competed anywhere near for the title. I think that was Conte's year of winning it um, in, uh, in his one year that they won it at Chelsea. Um, you know, Pep refused to change. People said it won't work in England playing this style. You won't be able to play out the back. He won't be able to play with inverted fullbacks and center backs that tuck in. And Pep basically was like, if you give me enough time, I'll teach these guys how to play the game my way and we will be successful. I'm not saying we're going to win everything, but we will be successful. And I think you could argue he's had a pretty good run in his five years in the Premier League. So, um, you know, I, I think what Klopp has done is different because he's had to build it in a different way. But I'm not sure if you gave Klopp the empty checkbook at City and all that talent, he would mesh them the same way Pep did. The same way I'm not sure that Pep would have turned some of the players on our squad into the household names and world-class players that they are. I think a player, a club, its supporters and its managers all have to work. And outside of the fraud supporters at City, I think it all works at City. And I think it all works here at Liverpool. And I think it's why we have this beautiful kind of juxtaposed positions where they're just like smashing at each other from all different angles. We play a lot alike and a lot different. We have similarities and we're so different from fan bases to supporter groups to the stadium, to the cities. And I just think that it's what's great about sport when these types of rivalries give you the black and white. And it's, you know, I think La Liga fans would tell you at the highest of highs, Barcelona and Real Madrid were like, you had the, the prettiest group with all the big names. And then you had a bunch of kids that were, came up through the academy and played Barcelona style of football. And it was just like a, a two different trains, you know, running head on. And it was a collision course every year at the end of La Liga. And I think we're in a renaissance right now where England hasn't had this in a long time. And I think this is a really, really big deal. And to Paul's point last week on the podcast, regardless of how many of these four trophies we end up winning, people should really look at this as watching something like beautiful and special. And we have 10, maybe 11 more matches to endure for the rest of the way. And I just think everyone should just take every second of it in because it won't be like this forever as much as we all want to believe it. 
Yeah, that's something I don't know what open a can of worms. That's something for another podcast where we kind of discuss the concept of rivalry. I still do not see it as a full blown rivalry like you know tomorrow's game because I feel like that is an actual rivalry because it does take more of a fan base and just like a short history run in my mind at least to become a rivalry. I think these are basically the two top teams clearly above everybody else right now. So, but we'll get to that. But let me, before we move on to the United game, let me ask you guys this because Parto asked this. So real quick, give me your take on this. He's like, he says, assuming both Liverpool and City meet in this championship league, ah, Champions League final with their best respective lineups and both teams playing at peak level, I'm curious as to who you believe it will lean. Bickler, let's start with you. If you had to do a pick, do you make a pick? Or can you make a pick? Even No, I, I can't. I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull for Liverpool, right? But, I mean, let's be honest. Since 2019, we've beat City just as much as City's beat us with three draws in the middle. Okay? It's like it is literally a coin flip. It comes down to who wins the midfield, who's the most physical, who turns the ball over the least, and it comes down to a lucky break. Like, it really does. It's not It's not like you look at these teams side by side and you can't put them at full strength and be that team is clearly better than that team. And I think that graphic we showed earlier is really – it's really interesting because, like, we look at City as having this dominance. And a lot of people is like look at Liverpool as a team, despite winning – in record fashion and breaking our 30 year title drought. A lot of people look at us as a team that hasn't got over the hump with city yet when it's really been a 50, 50 coin flip. And the fact of the matter is over that time period, we've actually amassed 20 more league points than city has that. Like I was shocked when I saw that I, I like, I know that we won the league by like a landslide that one year. And I think that probably tilts that stat a little bit, but it's still, I mean, over the run of five, six years, this thing has really been a lot more even than I think even our own supporters know. How about you, Gally? I mean, I feel like, I mean, I agree with Paul. It is so hard to call. And I think that's what makes these games kind of fun, exciting, and freaking nerve wracking. But um, I think the only thing I can think of is in a situation like that, because the Champions League final, I feel like we would have a slight psychological advantage for a team that's been there as a team that's been there and lost it. And that's team been there and won it. Whereas City would have a lot more pressure to win it because this is really what they want. But in terms of like on-field play, it is really hard to call. And like I said, that's I feel like that's what makes these matchups a lot more exciting than any other ones. What do you? Which way do you lean on that one? Yeah, I would. I'd probably lean to you know. Do we have a slight advantage based on the experience factor? I think you know you have a captain who's lifted the trophy, therefore you probably have the experience factor, right? Um, at the same time, their manager's been to the Champions League final and won it before too, so and lost it before. And your manager's been there and lost it twice and won it once, and so is theirs. So, you know, I, I think it goes both ways there. I'd probably call it a draw and, and say we'll go to an awful penalty shootout. Why? Because that's what happens when great teams that are matched up like this usually play out. And we seem to play them out in draws very often or one goal matches. So, you know, will I be going into it rooting for a 2-1 victory? Yes, I will. Will I be shocked if it's 2-2 at the end of regulation and extra time? I probably wouldn't. So if I were betting it, I'd bet with my heart. 
and I'd bet for a Liverpool win. I don't know that that's anything more than my heart talking, though, because logic tells you these two teams, they play even because they're just about even. And to Paul's point, we've almost been even over a five-year run in a league outside of one season where we went on an unbelievably massive run and we almost broke their spirit because they knew they couldn't catch us by literally the end of November. Dave Jennings says it also could come down to who won the league the week before. I mean, yeah, that could play into at least the psychological mindset in some ways who will be a bit more... And that's another factor to look at. So let's look at tomorrow real quick. Against United, my brother is already talking shit. Well, not really talking shit, I guess, but uh, more like he has hope. Should a United fan like that jerk of my brother? <laughs> that is my brother. Uh, should he have any hope, Bickler? And what kind of a lineup are you expecting tomorrow for us? I mean, let's be clear. I loved your brother in Harry Potter. Um, he, however, like United's going to be down five starters on a team that's already just horrid. I don't see how there's any room for optimism whatsoever in a rivalry game that tends to be closer. Even when the sides are lopsided, that rivalry usually evens itself out and it's a tighter game. I don't, I think, I don't see how United doesn't get run off the pitch and my fingers are crossed, and I'm knocking on all sorts of wood around me right now because – but, like, I just don't logistically see when you put those two sides against each other, I don't know, I don't understand how this match is going to be close. I really don't. Yeah, we got to do the – I got to post a picture so you, everybody who's listening can get the Harry Potter reference. But, yeah, uh, Bickler happened to take a look at a clip from our podcast we do with my brother. It is in Turkish, mind you. Uh, so you can only make fun of the faces, not what they're saying. And, yeah, he does look like – what's the name of the character? I'm not a Harry Potter guy personally. Haggard. Haggard. So, so we got to have to post a picture. Uh, his response was to tell Bickler to go – Fuck himself, but <laughs> my job is done for the day. As I look at the picture more and more, it just cracks me up every time now. Uh, so yeah, maybe I'll pull, I'll bring that up to the next podcast so we can just, especially once we beat United, it will make it even more. Can we just Photoshop a United kid on like Haggard and we're throwing on there. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Yeah, I should. You know what? I don't want to jinx anything, so I'll prep that <laughs> crap once we win. How about you, uh, Yali? What do you think? Uh, I definitely well, I think your brother looks like the guy. Topic, so give us a lineup as yeah, well. I definitely think your brother looks like the guy from Harry Potter. That is 100% I'm going on the record <laughs> with that. Um, and that might be the uh, end all of this podcast. But, no, I, I, uh, I, I'm with Paul here from the standpoint that I don't see how it's close. Normally, if this was both teams full strength, um, I can't believe I'm even going to say this out loud. If both teams were full strength and Ole was still the manager, I might think that United had a chance because every once in a while they showed up and actually did what played to their strengths. But since Ralph Ragnick has become their manager, they blew a two-goal lead to Norwich. And Norwich City looked the better side. And it took Ronaldo hitting a free kick for the first time in literally 17 years for them to get a 3-2 win at home against a team that has 15 points. And they're going to show up without Varon, without Shaw, without McFred. How are they going to play without Fred? I mean, seriously, this team is going to show up at Anfield and put a virtuoso performance together. 
I'm sorry. I just, I just don't see it happening. I don't see it happening with the level. I don't see it happening with uh, coming off of the win we just had against City, coming off of celebrating at Wembley. Um, they had a couple days to get right. I think there'll be a little bit of rotation from that lineup. Um, you know, I will say one, if there was one thing that bothered me, shocking awe here, guys, the substitution pattern at Wembley with five subs pissed me off that he didn't use one until the 73rd minute. Uh, with a game 72 hours later. But I do think I, – I think we're going to see Keita and Hendo and probably – or Keita, Hendo, and Fab start, um, or maybe even a surprise because, you know, I think Thiago's gone 85 minutes or more in two straight matches, which, as we've joked about before, I don't see him playing again that much. And um, maybe Thiago is kind of the uh, the weapon from the bench in this one. So if it were for me – I think the front three, maybe I think it's hard to sit Sadio right now. Mo's got to play to get out of his funk. You know, I'd love to see Diaz get out there, but I think it's probably Jota. I, I do think we're going to see, you know, Jota back in for Diaz. I think we'll see Keita possibly come in or Hendo come in for Thiago and keep Keita in the lineup. And the real question is, is at some point, Kanate is going to earn a start by his play. And he's made... 22 starts so far this year for Liverpool, 15 wins, seven draws. And before anyone tells me those were all cup games, nine of those were in the Champions League. So he has made an awful lot of appearances. And I, I, I just think at some point we're going to start to see that. So for me, two, three goal victory for the good guys. And I, uh, I think it leads bodes well leading into the Everton match. I just want to get your brother in here so I can see his face when I ask him how it feels to know that your best midfield is when you have McFred in it. <laughs> yeah, he hates the, the McFred combo with a passion as well. Uh, honestly, he normally stays very quiet. Like wherever, whenever, you know, I talk about American Scotser or, you know, like try to pull the conversation in the Premier League. It's just get he sprints it back to the Turkish league or anything else. So, <laughs> so this week he has been a bit more like mentioning the game and stuff like that. I'm like, you're getting hopeful, aren't you? You're like suddenly using the name Manchester in a conversation and WhatsApp, and that hasn't happened. He's bringing so. up like the next Jewish holiday on the calendar. It makes no <laughs> sense for you guys, like anything. So yeah, it's uh, we'll see. I I bet you after tomorrow I won't hear about uh, United till like beginning of next season. But score prediction for you, Paul? I I'm gonna go four nil, and I think that's being kind. That's I don't know, man. I mean, despite how well we played, you know what scares me compared to the first game is Mo. You know, we were Listen. just watching the highlights with actually Layla last night on YouTube when we were in the YouTube black hole watching all kinds of weird stuff. And you see some of the finishes he said there. And it's just like ridiculous confidence that I think that's that fourth goal uh, where he just takes it like first time. I feel like Mo right now controls that first and maybe does not score that. That's probably one concern I have in I terms think of the score going up high, I should say. I just look at this, like, I look at this United side and outside of a, like, inspired Ronaldo performance based on what's going on in his life, which is very possible. Like, what what else is there? What They're so disjointed. They're so disjointed. And you're going to go against arguably the best defensive team in the league with arguably the best offense. Going for the quad, 
who's in incredible form despite Mo. Like I just I don't see I don't see any other result than like a lopsided victory. And you know, God, let's hope let's hope I'm I'm right because I'll I'll definitely eat it and would hate to be wrong on that. But I just don't see any other scenario. And I'm generally not the optimist. No, I I can definitely. Everybody knows I'm definitely not the optimist. But Parto says uh, United showed up for a while in their last league match against City, but were exposed over a duration of 90 minutes. And his prediction is the same as mine: three-one. Just have to be cautious that we don't let out our foot off the pedal. He says, and I do agree. I think that's probably like the bigger concern to me is if we started as and you know listening to Klopp today, he kind of almost like. Almost sounded like that was his concern too, that we don't approach the game as this is a team we pummeled last time and now they're missing people too. Because uh, I feel like I, you can kind of see in the second half of the game, if this, team, if this team is not going full speed, it's not going at all. It's like as like one gear it feels like when it's attacking. So I just want to make sure we don't come out there complacent and just give them a lucky goal or something like that. I think that would be the disaster scenario. But otherwise, I mean, you look at these lineups, you look at the form of the teams, and yeah, I mean, when Norwich can kind of go through their defense like that, how we wouldn't be able to would be shocking to see. And I don't know, like you're saying, Gally, I don't know if they're going to play that scared. Uh that's kind of like against what they're trying to do now. So like you're saying, all they might have been like, yeah, let's play counter. Like just a good old fashioned away team in Enfield kind of thing. But I don't know if Ragnick is going to be doing that uh, score prediction. I know you said a two or three goal lead for the good guys, but give us a score. Yeah, I, I would, I, I think you're going to go three, one. So I'll go four, one just to keep it. Uh, so we all have a separate score. Paul's at four nil. I'll go four, one. What do you got? I'm going with the three-one. He's going with the four-zero. I'm just not expecting the clean sheet somehow, but I I can see I can definitely see that scoreline. I'm just like the warrior, so I'm going with the safer bet. But, um, and yeah, I mean the whole Ronaldo thing. I hope the club and the fans kind of approach that well. That is just I don't know if he will play tomorrow, and if you've heard that, you know, uh, I haven't seen anything that's confirmed that he's out. It's the club has left it as a personal decision for Ronaldo, and that you know that can go either way. And honestly, knowing him as much as I don't like the dude. I feel like he would play and he would play well. Yep, and, me too. I mean, I think anybody, I mean, I've had it um, when you're my freaking age, it happens. Uh, like when you lose somebody close to you, sometimes doing like what's kind of like comes to you as natural and like your comfort zone is the best way to get away from the shits, even if it's only for hours. I was, hours, I was thinking hours. about that Brett Favre performance on Monday night after his dad passed away, bad. like the day before. Yeah. He just lit it up in an unreal performance. So, yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, Brett Favre was another guy I didn't like, but I feel like Ronaldo would have the same kind of mentality and mindset where he would be able to use his focus and actually play well. Go ahead, Gally. I'm sorry you were saying something. No, I just I, – I try so hard. It's so hard to – I'm trying to think of the right words in this type of a situation. It's like – I try not to put myself in the understanding of the mindset because I, I couldn't even comprehend or fathom the pain or like the angst that he's going through and to have it happen so soon after the, you know, the birth of the child and to know that it was part of a twin like this, there's so much more to this and there's so much emotion. The only thing I hope, you know, we, we joke about CR seven and the ruthless, you know, selfish thing the maniacal guy that's made him this right that allowed him to become the greatest at what he's ever done 
Um, and I believe that's what he is. As sad as it is for me to say that, I believe that. I just hope he's actually getting right for himself and he's taking care of the people he loves. Because his partner, her family, they, they're all going through all of this. And I know he wants to play. And if he needs to play and can play, I want he should play, right? I, who am I to say it? I just hope that it, that there are people that are saying to him, you don't have to play. Like this won't you no one will look down because you walked away. Like I know he reads the bad press when he goes and does, you know, literally promotional things in the Middle East and then tries to get back and misses matches and he gets and then he gets defensive and they lie for him. That's not this situation. If you can't play at Anfield tomorrow, no one will judge you. And I hope to hell it, he won't be judged by any of the people there. And if he is in attendance, it should be the only time he is roused with an ovation and a real ovation from every single person there. And I'm going to be there in a month. And if I were there, I would hope that I'd be part of that positive environment because I think when moments like this transcend sport, and they make you realize that there's a lot more to it than that. And I just hope he does what's best for him and his family and not what he thinks he needs to do what's best for CR7. Because I think too often those two things get crossed up. And it's part of the reason we think about him the way we do. Yeah, but I mean, while I understand what you're saying, but, you know, if you've been, if you're his spouse or if you're his people around him and you've been with this guy, you kind of know like his mentality and he approaches things. I mean, he's kind of like a rare breed to me. I mean, as much as like I say, I do not like his antics and stuff like that. You got to kind of respect the discipline he approaches the game with. Uh, like, you know, like reminds me of like, you know, like somebody like Kobe Bryant or someone like that. We we're just talking about him the other day with someone. And I would think that people around them would understand it. Yeah. And I do agree. I hope like, you know, like the crowd kind of like approaches it right, especially after what we were talking about earlier. And Paul, did you notice how we squeeze in the fact that, you know, he's going to Anfield and, you know, I'm going to squeeze it in every show people. Um, yes. And Charlie yeah. wrote that shit in there. Yeah. But to Mucin, to your point though, and I, I know we're going over, but I think this is worth mentioning to your point. That's the thing. I, I agree. He has that mentality. Like Kobe Bryant, I'm a Boston Celtics fan. I cannot stand the Lakers and I know you love them. All you foreigners come over here. You know two things in this world: Showtime and Showtime. Um, but What's you know the they love well, the the Showtime, the Lakers, the, the Lakers and the Showtime. Oh, all the Lakers. <laughs> that was the point. But the I don't believe if like I actually believe Kobe being Bryant. If there's one thing Kobe Bryant showed during his time in the NBA was that the only thing more important than winning was his family. And it's unfortunate and all the tragedy that happened to Kobe is, is I genuinely believe that Kobe Bryant would have been, I think Kobe Bryant took two games off in his NBA career because his, they were the days that his daughters were born and he refused to not be with his wife where some players are the opposite. They want to play to, you know, commemorate that night. I just hope that whatever decision he makes, it's for what's best for him and his family and not for, the mixture of his brand and his image. Cause I think too much of what we get about Cristiano Ronaldo is about his image and not about who he really is. And he might be liked by more people, but I know we're going to wrap this up and I can't believe we got through 103 minutes without recognizing that today is a very special day in, in Liverpool Leward. Today is one Divock Origi's 27th birthday. I'm probably reminding Divock right now that today is his birthday. He probably has no clue, 
had no idea when he showed up for training, they were probably singing happy birthday. He was probably turning around, looking around, wondering why. Um, but I assume that was why Klopp put him on the bench on Saturday. It was like his last gift. You can put on this uniform one more time because I'm not sure we're going to get to see him play again. But happy birthday, Divac. Hopefully there's a fashion show in your future. Any parting thoughts, Bickler? It's a shame we brought up Origi at an hour and five minutes because I'd like to talk about him being on my bench in fantasy, but we have no time for fantasy talk. Ah, we do have no time for fantasy talk. And yeah, uh, I don't have Divac or I might as well freaking start Divac at this point. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. Hopefully after the win tomorrow, we'll be Gally will be back Thursday. Uh, on Thursday's podcast, well, they'll recap tomorrow's game and look ahead to the Derby against Everton. Thank you all for listening and commenting. See you guys next week.